right, so like I said, we are beginning Advent. And Advent, the definition of it is basically the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And Advent is when we look to the arrival of our Savior. We remember the first coming, but then we look to his second coming. And so this year, Al and I are going to point you to the, some different characteristics of Christ as we go through Advent. And then it's, it's how fitting, it's how fitting that we are in Isaiah normally at this time of year. Isaiah and his prophecies are hope. His prophecies of hope in the coming Messiah is actually the symbol of the first candle. Tom, do you want to light the first candle for us? Amazon let me down, so we only have one candle. Next week, we'll have the whole wreath. All right, thank you so much. So the passage we want to go through, and we won't dwell on it too long. I apologize. I have a lot of ground to cover. But I wanted to point something out. In Matthew 22:41 through 44, and I might cheat and read you 45. It says, starting in, in verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, "What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he?" And they said to him, "He's the son of David." And he said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? With the question, what do you think about the Son in mind? I'm going to walk us through the following. I want to go through a brief overview of the Trinity, um, then discuss Jesus as fully man and fully God, and then Jesus' relationship with God and the Holy Spirit while he was on earth. And then, what, fourthly, what can we learn from this? example of Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time of year that we can put everything else away and, and focus on the incredible miracle, the most powerful gift that we can imagine is Christ coming down on earth to fulfill everything we saw in the Old Testament and then with the promise finish at the end of Revelation. May we never take that for granted and we just love you so much. We thank you for this time that we can go through that. Amen. So a definition of the Trinity Three in one or tri-unity. 
You know, we never see the word Trinity in the Bible anywhere. But we see the three persons of God revealed to us. And some say that the Trinity, seeing all three levels, is just a New Testament feature once Jesus is on the scene and he is telling us about the Comforter or the Holy Spirit that will be with us once he returns to the Father. But from the very beginning, if you look at the Bible, you see God telling us about the Trinity. It's in Genesis 1.26, God says, let's make man in our own image, after our own likeness. So here we have the Godhead is creating man, and God is saying to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, let's make man after our own likeness. He's not talking to the angels. And how do we know this? God is talking to the Godhead. He was talking to everyone that was involved in the creation story. And they're at that point where they're making man. And then how do we know they were? Well, the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. And we see that in the third verse of the book. In Genesis 1-3, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And do we know if Jesus was there? Yes. We actually see that in the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So here we have a witness from the Old Testament and the New Testament that the creation took place with the Trinity. And there are also beautiful passages in the Bible where we see God talking to Jesus. One is in Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Psalm 45, 6 and 7. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprighteous. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Therefore, God, Jesus, your God, the Father, has anointed you. What a beautiful example of love between God the Father and God the Son. In this verse, there's two separate persons are called God. And one's throne will last forever and ever. And you see it in Hebrews chapter 1, 1, 1 through 14. And also now in Psalm 110, verse 1, David wrote, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
This is the part where Jesus quoted in Matthew 21, 22, I mean, 41 through 44, to ask the Pharisees whose son is the Christ. And notice, notice how he works the third person of the Trinity into this. I'll read it again. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, and whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. So not only do we see Jesus throughout the whole Bible, we all see we see all three members of the Trinity. So the simple statement to make about the Trinity is God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there is only one God. Now let's move on to Jesus as fully God and fully man. In Wayne Grudem's book on systematic theology, you will find extensive information on all things of proper Christianity. And included in this is a section on Jesus on fully God and fully man. And if you're wondering what to get someone for Christmas this year, I just want to point out his new book, his revised systematic theology is coming out in nine days, ten days from now. Um, I know I have one pre-ordered for my wife. Don't tell her. But um, it's, I'm excited. I mean, if you've not gone through, I mean, every family should have one, at least one. And it's, it's daunting. You look at it, it's thicker than this book. But it's broken up into chapters there are like 25 pages, and this man is spot on, spot on. And so he's got a new book coming out that has 20 years of, of uh, updates to it. And if you even want, you can get your kids a workbook to go along with it. Yes, Tyler, a workbook. Yes. You have free time, yes. And you can learn about the Bible. All right. So we're going to go over some of the information he has in the old book. I can't wait to put the new book next to the old book. Geeking out here. All right. First, let's talk about Jesus as human. We know that Jesus was a human by the focus that's placed on him during this time of year. And what we celebrate, we celebrate his birth. Jesus was born of a virgin but without a human father. Matthew 1.8 tells us, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, it, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? The virgin birth made it possible to unite fully God and fully man into one person, Christ. And God chose this method. He chose this method 
to send his Son into the world for the purpose of our salvation. Galatians 4.4 talks about this. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, Jesus set forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you are an heir through God. So we know through Scripture that Jesus provided this way for us and that we know this is the technique, this is the way God chose to bring salvation to us, giving Jesus a human body. And we know he was born just as all humans are born. In Luke 2, 7, it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. And he grew in size from a baby through to adulthood, just as any other human would. Luke 2.40 says, And the child grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Luke quotes that, and also where do we see that? We see that in the book of Samuel, talking about the young child that was given to Eli to raise. Also, Jesus had human characteristics, so we know he became tired just as we do, right? Um, remember, he met the woman at the well because he became tired and sat down to rest, and that's in John 4, 6. He also displayed that to us that he was thirsty because he asked the woman at the well for a drink, and also when he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. And after he fasted for 40 days, he was hungry. We get that information from Matthew 4.11, or we can just call that the 4.11. At times he was weak, and we see that when he finished his temptation in the desert, he was weak, and also after the intense beating he took by the Romans, the Romans had Simon of Cyrene carry his cross. And he had some of our same emotions. We see when facing the cross, knowing it was coming, in John 12, 27, he said, my soul is troubled. When it was getting closer to the time of the cross, he said in John 13, 21, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. But facing the cross is not the only emotions that we see in Christ. We see that he marveled at the great faith of the centurion in Matthew 8.10. He wept with sorrow at the death of Lazarus. And in Matthew 15.21 through 28, he demonstrated his cunning by drawing out the great faith of the Gentile woman when she had asked for him to heal her daughter, and Jesus told her, hey, I've not come for the Gentiles. And he said this by saying, 
it's not right to take the food from the children and throw it to the dogs. And she responded, yes, but even the dogs are there to take the scraps that fall off from the table. And Jesus also offered up prayers to God like we are too. It says in Hebrews 5, 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his godly fear. And then people that had known Jesus from a child only thought of him as a man. Now, although Jesus had developed this great reputation around the area for his teaching, his healing, and great crowds were following him, yet when he went to the village he grew up in, in Nazareth, the people there did not believe he was God. They had seen his mother and his father, had seen his siblings, had watched him grow up, and they just could not believe. So why was it necessary for Jesus to be fully man? Well, this is to be the perfect sacrifice. Jesus had to be fully man to come and die in our place. Hebrews says it is not with the angels that God was concerned, but he was concerned with the descendants of Abraham. God was interested in saving man, not angels. We need to realize that unless he was fully man, his death would not have paid for our sins. He was to be the one mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So while we were alienated from God by sin, we need the perfect priest to represent us to God. And this is only possible by the fact that Jesus was fully man and fully God. One thing that we may not think about is Jesus' resurrection served as a pattern for our pending redeemed bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44 tells us that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in a new body that was imperishable and raised in glory and raised in power. You know, we get this also. We get this also. Right now, we have a body like Adam. And I tell you, younger people, you'll find out what this body, how it just sucks. And how when you wake up, you're saying, that's not fair. This part of me hurts and hurts always. And now this part's hurting. Yeah. So I am looking forward to that one day. Because one day we will have a body like Christ. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, it says in verse 49 to all believers, just that we have bore the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And these are great promises to believers. It is hard to fathom sometimes. It is just hard to fathom, right? The depth of God's love for us. It is so hard that we don't even know 
the depth of his love until we go in and learn more of it. And then we will see it when we have that body of Christ. So may we continue to grow closer in him in this life. Now let's go over Jesus as fully God. Repeatedly, Jesus is called God in the New Testament. This is the God that is the creator of heaven and earth. John 1.1, John 1.18, John 20.28, Romans 9.5, Titus 2.13, 2 Peter 1.1, and Hebrews 1.8, which is quoting... Psalms 45, 6, all talk about this. And then after Advent, when we get back to Isaiah, we're going to see the promise of Jesus in chapter 9. Because naturally we stopped right before we got to the major promise of Christ. And we will see that Isaiah is promising us that Jesus is the mighty God. And Luke 2.11 tells us, that Jesus is Christ the Lord. In Luke 1.43, Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist, right now she is full of the Holy Spirit, and she calls Mary, while Mary is pregnant with Jesus, the mother of the Lord God. And the best example is from Jesus himself. In John 8, 56 through 8, Jesus is talking to the people that opposed him. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Wait, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus tells them, Truly, truly, I say to you, that before Abraham was, I am. And you may not know what a powerful phrase that is, but those two words, I am, is extremely powerful, especially to this people. If you look at Exodus 3.14, Exodus 3.14, Moses wants to know the name of God that he's going to say, to the Israelites who sent him to bring them out. And Jesus says, I am who I am. So when Jesus told them, I am, there was no mistake about what he was telling these humans. He was saying, I am their God. I am Yahweh. I am standing before you. And they had the wrong reaction, right? Instead of falling down to their, their knees and worshiping, they chose to pick up rocks. Now in the four Gospels, we see all the acts also that prove Christ's deity. We see a supernatural acts of healing, walking on water, feeding thousands, tens of thousands, with a couple fish and some loaves of bread, and then we see him healing people and raising them from the dead. So now let's go over Jesus' relationship with the Father 
and the Holy Spirit while he was on earth. Let's look at the Holy Spirit first. And this is the thing that got me. I was thinking, like, how often do we think of the relationship that Christ had with the Holy Spirit while he was on earth? So let's look at this relationship. It started off in Luke 1.35, right? It tells us the Holy Spirit would lead the way for Jesus to enter the womb. And then the Holy Spirit moved on these people that were involved in Christ's life to make them ready and accepting for this world-changing event. We see Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he came to her saying, Greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary told, is told basically by an angel that she received grace and the Lord is with her. The word favored that stowed here means the free bestowal of grace. So basically what it means, same to us, she received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bore witness to John the Baptist of Christ in his presence while he was in Elizabeth's womb and stayed with John the Baptist his entire life. In fact, in Luke 1.15 tells us the Holy Spirit would, would be with John from his, mother room, his mother's womb. And in fact, we read that John leapt in his mother's room when Mary approached and she was pregnant with Jesus. Elizabeth, John's mother, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see that in Luke 1.41. And then some of the best examples we see are two people named Simeon and Anna. Two people extremely advanced in age, and they had the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit bore witness to them that they would see Christ before we passed, before they passed. So they were in the temple when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus as a baby to show him to the priests, and they saw Christ, which they were promised they would do, and they blessed Jesus. And then we see Jesus preparing for his ministry. In Luke 3 and 4, we see the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus during his baptism and then soon lead him in the desert to be tempted by Satan. And I am positive the Holy Spirit gave Jesus strength during this period of temptation. Jesus was weak from hunger and being tempted by the master deceiver. And then when Satan finally gave up, the Holy Spirit led Jesus to Galilee to begin his ministry. And then Jesus is quoted in Isaiah 61.1 to start his ministry, and we see the Holy Spirit in this verse. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. We may not often think about it, but Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit his entire life and really relied on him with the cross was in, in sight. In Luke 10, it was written, in that same hour, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then Christ, heading towards that cross, leaned heavily on the Spirit. I've no, I've, I've mentioned this often from the pulpit, but if you want to see the emotion of Christ, knowing that the cross was his immediate future, about two months out, take some time and read from Luke 9:51 through the end of Luke, and really put your mind on noticing the emotion Jesus is using when he talks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others. You see something that you might not notice unless you really put your mind to focusing on his emotion. And knowing that Christ, I mean, knowing that the Holy Spirit is the comforter, you know that Jesus leaned on him all the time during this period. And then at the end of his time on earth, we read in Matthew 27, 51 through 54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection and they went in the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those who were with him kept watch over jesus saw the earthquake saw what took place they were filled with awe and truly said this was the son of god this was all the works of the holy spirit who was very active on Jesus' time on earth and his death, bearing witness to who he was. And now he plays a major role, the role, as our comforter. Now let's take a look at the relationship between God the Father and Jesus while on earth. From the very beginning of Jesus being a young man, he knew what his job was on earth. And what a how precious when you look at this is the relationship between father and son to see Jesus response when he was asked in Luke 2:49 why he was in the temple and not with his family heading back to the Nazareth he said to them why were you looking for me did you not know that i must be about i must be in my father's house and it says a few verses later that Jesus continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. In Mark 1.35, we see Jesus rising up every morning early, going out to a desolate place and having a time with his Father in prayer. We see this trait all through his life, even when he was in the garden with hours to go in his life, what did he do? He took his disciples only so far and then left them, asked them to watch and pray, and he went off by himself to have that time with his father and pray. Jesus went to pray for his disciples or 
when he went for a healing or to bless a meal, he was praying to his father. And then someone asks, how do we know this? Well, we can even look. So when Jesus was teaching his disciples the outline of prayer, he started out by showing them how to pray to their father by saying, our father who art in heaven. So may Jesus' example be our goal while we are on earth. May we strive to seek God's face early and often every day. So what can we learn from the example of Christ here that we've gone over? Number one, I believe we need to follow his example from a young boy and then later to a young teen, and we need to grow in wisdom of the Lord. And how do we do that? Well, we do it by reading daily, and not just one time through a passage, but by digging in and repeatedly going through a passage, asking the Holy Spirit for help and understanding, looking at the cross-references, and then seeking wise counselors. And, and we can do that because technology is so great these days. We can look at people like John Piper, like Wayne Grudem and others, and then you can also, in your community group, ask for guidance from Al or myself on any passage. Two, you can follow Christ's example by rising early, seeking God's face in prayer, and not just checking the box, but lifting up praise for him, and then working to prayer and supplication, and becoming, pers becoming like that persistent widow that's listed in Luke 18, 1 through 8. Jesus said, will God not give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? You know, we want justice. We want people brought to salvation. But we tend to miss that last part. So we need to develop a persistence and truly cry out to him day and night. Think about it. This time on earth is short and then forever is it's forever. So how long are we willing to invest in asking God to save our lost family and friends from a period of time that is going to be forever in hell? How much time? Right now, and this was so convicting to me, I'm thinking, do I just give a few seconds when I remember, when I actually remember before going to bed. God is telling us to be persistent in our prayers to him like Jesus was on this earth. And he's saying, look, if an unjust judge gave this widow justice, how much more that a God that loves us is going to give? So hope is that message of the first advent. Jesus is our example of hope. So let's make this an awesome time in developing our relationship with the Trinity. Let's make prayer time something that we long for. Let's develop our lists that we pray for. And let's cry out to God day and night. So I want you to think of what could happen if we all truly prayed this way. 
how awesome it would be. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this season. We thank you for this time of Advent. We thank you for these four messages, these four reminders of, of Jesus coming into the world the first time and our longing for him to be back with us. I know it's, it's, it's a heart condition, Lord. We just want to pray that we truly, truly use you as our example, Jesus, and we want to truly develop a relationship with you, with the Holy Spirit, and God the Father in a deep way where we are really understanding your word and really reaching out to you and praying and hurting for those that are not called yet. We love you so much and we thank you for the many gifts you've given us. Amen.